0: A powerful, noble family dominates the empire, especially the Rhineland and the boring low-mountain range Eifel. In this episode, their political influence expands even further. Also on Cologne, which they will dominate in many ways for decades in the middle of the 11th century. But in the end, a man from Swabia, so southern Germany, insignificant at first sight, will initiate their end. And with that, welcome back to the History of Cologne, a podcast about the city of Cologne, today's Western Germany, that is over 2,000 years old. But until it became what is today, this old city on the Rhine has had a colorful and rich past. It can therefore stand as a kind of microcosm of European history. In this podcast, you can listen to the city grow, from the Romans to our present time. It's nice that you're here again and gave me that little summer break. I really needed that. Dankeschön. But now back to the subject. We return to the middle of the 11th century. We talk a lot about the city of Cologne, logically. I also try to keep in mind the places and regions that are in the immediate vicinity and have a strong influence on Cologne. However, the Rhine and the surrounding countryside are, of course, far too large a geographical area to always cover adequately here. In this episode, we look at the noble family of the Edzonits, who will make a great rise in power here in the 11th century. But as always with such topics, we can do this here only in part. What influence these so-called Edsonids had on Cologne and the surrounding area and why it was a small nobleman from southern Germany who ended this deep career of this noble family, you will learn in this episode. Off to the intro. The noble family of the Zonitz was at the height of power in the 11th century. The namesake and count Palatine of Lorraine named Ezzo had already attained an almost ducal position on the Rhine around the year 1000. How had he managed this? It was, as so often in life, the circumstance of having the right connections and um, the right nose, how we would say in German as a metaphor. Etso had successfully married into the then still existing Ottonian imperial dynasty. He then used his proximity to the ruling family to successively expand his power in all parts of the Rhineland and the Empire. Now the early and high middle ages were far from having regional, coherent and close territorial states, but almost at every corner there was always something that belonged to the Etsonids at that time. The greatest coup, however, Ezzo had done was with his own marriage policy. With Matilde, Ezzo had married the only daughter of our beloved Theophanu and Otto II. And thus the Count Palatine of Lorraine was also the brother-in-law of Emperor Otto III. But Emperor Otto III died very young at only 21 in 2002, as we already know. Edzo was at loggerheads several times with his successor, Emperor Henry II, to whom he was related by marriage. This circumstance made the two domestic political opponents of Henry, Edzo and Cologne Archbishop Heribert, close partners. Ezzo also apparently got along well with Heribert's successor in the Cologne archbishopric named Pilgrim. We will take a closer look at this with an example in a moment. Ezzo had already been a member of the high nobility before his marriage to Mathilde. With Theophanu's granddaughter at his side, however, he had now finally arrived in the upper class of the empire. You can still see the once powerful influence, Here in stone in the Rhineland, northwest of Cologne, in what is now the town of Pulheim, lies a large monastery, the Abbey of Brauweiler. Like all high nobles at that time, Ezzo and Mathilde did not want to miss the opportunity to establish their own big monastery, which would later serve as their burial place for themselves and the family. This promised prestige, reputation and, hopefully, a place in heaven for themselves and their own family. The clergy there regularly prayed for the salvation of their founders. We should not underestimate the personal piety of the people at that time. That Ezzo and Matilda were serious is handed down. Now, one could judge it as a simple legend that Matilde allegedly received a vision in a dream to found the monastery exactly here in Brauweiler, as it is written down in the so-called Fundatio Monasterii Bruna Villarensis, Latin as hard sometimes, translated Foundation History of the Monastery Brauweiler around 1100. But not only that. Both traveled to Rome in 1023 and asked the Pope for some relics, with which they could furnish the newly founded monastery. Because a monastery without relics is like french fries without ketchup. You can do without? But then is it really fun? The Archbishop of Cologne at that time, Pilgrim, we met him in the last regular episode, supported this project. After all, a large, rich monastery right outside the city of Cologne also benefited the Cologne Archbishopric. In Brauweiler, Matilde and Etzel already built on proven grounds. Probably already in Roman times, an estate stood here, a Villa Rustica, which once served to supply noise and or also for our CCAA. So Roman Cologne. Probably abandoned at the end of the Roman rule on the Rhine in the course of the 4th and 5th century, the area in Brauweiler fell into a slumber that lasted for several centuries. However, life may have returned here again in Merovingian times so that the monastery was not built entirely on an undeveloped site. Matilde and Edzo also dared to break new ground in appointing a leader for the new monastery in Brauweiler. With Poppo of Stablo, They appointed an abbot to the Benedictine monastery who belonged to the monastic reform movement of Cluny. This movement denounced the increasing secularization of the monasteries and wanted to go back to the roots. Simple speaking. So back to the beginnings. Ora et labora. Pray and work. As St. Benedict once prescribed. Monks should finally observe celibacy and no longer have wives and children. For this was still widespread in the 11th century. Monks and nuns should not dwell in great riches in the monastery. Despite all efforts, this would not really work in the medium term, but let's leave that. We are not a church history podcast. We might get to that another time. I do find it strange that of Stablo was abbot for 16, yes. 16 other monasteries besides Brauweiler, but hey, who am I? After all, he was busy and really lived the life of an ascetic, so I don't want to accuse him of anything bad. An initial monastery church for Brauweiler Abbey was replaced by a new building starting in 1048 and was completed in 1061. By then, Ezzo and Mathilde were both dead. Ezzo died in 1034, Matilde had already died in 1025. In the meantime, the church, including the monastery grounds, has been rebuilt several times over the centuries, but without the initiative of Matilde and Ezzo, it would never have been built at all. Visit the place if you are near Cologne. Ezzo and Matilde laid the foundation for the further rise of the noble family of the Edsonids. However, the Itsonids found their peak in the following generation. It is their children, Matilde and Etzel's children, who take off. A whole ten of them have reached adulthood, and they all achieved a great many things. But ten children, my goodness. Almost without exception, they all held high ecclesiastical or political offices in the empire. For reasons of time and context, however, I would like to mention only three of the children here. Two daughters and one son. On the one hand, there is Richetza, who was born around the year 995. Through her mother, Matilde, she was logically the granddaughter of Theophano. Richetza had a steep career in the beginning. She was married still young to the later Polish king Mieszko II in 1013. Whether it is cool to be married at the age of eight, I don't know, but that's how it was back then. Then, in 1024, she was crowned Polish Queen at Mieszko's side. It is, among other things, her influence that allowed the young kingdom of Poland to join the rest of Christian and, above all, Catholic Europe. Through her descendants, she found the dynasty of the Piasts, who would rule Poland until the 14th century with some breaks and provide the king there. In 1034, after the death of her husband, she ruled the kingdom for a short time together with her son, but soon the opposition in Poland was too great for her there. Lichetza had to flee back to her homeland and spend her last years in Saalfeld, Thuringia. Lichetza had to flee back to her homeland and spend the second part of her life in Saalfeld, Thuringia. In course of her long life, a long life for that time, Richetza made numerous donations to the Cologne Cathedral and especially to the Abbey of Brauweiler that was found by her parents. After her death in 1063, Vichetza was not buried in Brauweiler Abbey as you might think, but in St. Maria at Grados, a church directly east of Cologne Cathedral. You've never heard of that church? Well, that's my fault. I haven't even mentioned it yet because chronologically we hadn't even gotten there yet. But St. Maria at Grados we have to keep for a while. But we will talk about St. Maria at Grados shortly in another episode. Nowadays, Richetzer's tomb is in the St. John's chapel of Cologne Cathedral. I will also post a picture of this on social media in the days to come. And for the impatient ones, uh, you can guess the homepage, thehistoryofcologne.com. You will also find a picture of it there. Mm-hmm. Then there is Ida, a younger sister of Richezza. So she is, of course, also granddaughter of our beloved Theophonus. She became abbess of the Benedictine Monastery of St. Mary in the capital during her life, When exactly is unfortunately not really known, but it must have happened before the year 1038. Now it becomes perhaps briefly something complicated, because this Ida is not to be confused, however, with the Ida from the legend of Charles Motel, which took place in the early 8th century. This is a completely different Eda here 300 years later. And above all, this Eda is real. Ida's work is clearly visible in the Cologne cityscape. She had her convent church of Saint Mary in the capital rebuilt. And this in a truly large dimensions that can still be seen today. Yes, finally, we are talking about a church in its form nearly 900 years ago that you can still see today as it has been 900 years ago. Here in the former Roman Temple district, Ida built a monastery church with three towers in the west and the triconch in the east. She also had the largest crypt in Germany built. Only the crypt in the imperial cathedral of Speyer was larger at that time. And the best thing is, as I said, you can really visit THAT version of the church even nowadays. The one that is in close proximity to the Heumarkt, the Haymarket. Despite the extensive destruction caused by the Second World War, St. Mary in the capital, after its long reconstruction, continues to correspond to what Ida once built here. Thus original parts of the interior furnishings she donated at that time still exist. In the southern aisle, you can still see a large double-leaf and richly decorated wooden door that Ida had made for the convent church. I have been to the church so many times that I hope I have taken a picture of it. If not, I pass by it often, I'll pop in and take a picture of this now almost 1000-year-old wooden door. Even some remnants of paint can still be seen on closer inspection. In 26 Reliefs, you can see here the story of Jesus. It is true that several bronze doors of this kind from the 11th century have survived to this day. However, the door in St. Mary in the capital here in Cologne is the only one of these church doors that has survived that is made of wood. How rich this city is in historical art treasures that one would not immediately recognize or suspect here. Likewise, Ida together with her brother, whom we will talk about in more detail in a moment, donated a magnificent reliquary cross, which is said to be in the museum of the Archdiocese of Cologne, the Columba Museum. I have now visited the museum several times, but I have never seen the cross itself there. It's a shame, but maybe it was because there were always big special exhibitions there at the time. Maybe it was in the depot at that time. When in 1049 the people's altar in St. Mary in the capital was finished, which was reserved for the services of the congregation, so the laity, none other than Pope Leo IX consecrated it with his blessing. For this purpose, Leo had come from Rome to Cologne, with 72 other bishops from all over Europe, Oh yes, and the then Emperor Henry III of the Holy Roman Empire was also there for the sake of completeness. This again is a sign which high position the Itzonids family, especially Ida, still had in the Empire and beyond. Of course, nowadays, Abbess Ida is immortalized as a stone figure on the historic Town Hall Tower. As a partial reconstruction, her figure is one of the few that survived World War II to some degree and was placed on the Town Hall Tower in 1901. I will post a picture of her on social media and of course in a companion post for this episode on thehistoryofcologne.com. Ida died in 1060 and her tomb is still located in the eastern part of the church in the Triconch. Directly opposite of Plectrude, if I'm not mistaken. I will also post a picture of that, of her sarcophagus, Um, yeah, you can think where, on my homepage and social media. Third time is the charm. So let's move on to the third child of Mathilde and Edso that we want to deal with here. This time, a son named Hermann. Hermann was destined for a clerical career at an early age, much like his other sisters who all became abbesses, except, of course, Richezza, who married the later Polish king, and another daughter who remained a normal nun. Even if it may sound tiresome, Hermann's career seems so familiar now for our ears. Like many of his Cologne predecessors, Hermann was court chaplain at the imperial court next to the Kaiser, the emperor. The direct, literal proximity to the emperor was always useful for a spiritual career, since at that time the emperor could still dispose almost freely over the appointment of his bishops in the empire. He was the one who invested them into the archbishoprics of his empire. Hermann also served his emperor in Italy. In Cologne, as provost of the cathedral, as head of the Cologne cathedral chapter, he made himself familiar with the city on the Rhine at an earlier stage. So it is hardly surprising that after the death of Archbishop Pilgrim in 1036, this earned him the appointment by Emperor Conrad II now as the new chief shepherd of Cologne. Hermann was now the new archbishop of Cologne, as Hermann II. So it is hardly surprising that after the death of Archbishop Pilgrim in 1036, this earned him the appointment by Emperor Conrad II as the new Chief Shepherd of Cologne. Hermann was now the new Archbishop of Cologne as Hermann II. With this, the Itzonids have expanded their power to a size never imagined before. The largest city of the Empire is now also in their hands. In the spirit of an imperial bishop with great spiritual but also secular power as a vassal of the emperor, Hermann took part in the Italian military campaign of Conrad II in 1037-1038. Emperor Conrad II died in 1039, but Archbishop Hermann was also loyal to the new emperor, Henry III. For example, when in neighboring Upper Lorraine in 1044, the local duke dared to revolt against the crown and even received support from the French king, Hermann remained firmly on the side of the new emperor, and the uprising failed. The right of the archbishops of Cologne to anoint the king, which Pilgrim had already obtained beforehand, was also officially recognized by the Pope in Rome in 1052. When Hermann then crowned the future three-year-old Emperor Henry IV in 1054, the Archbishopric of Mainz, which until then continued to regard itself as the supreme Archbishopric in the Empire, again protested vehemently. Only three years earlier, Hermann had already baptized the royal infant, not the Archbishop of Mainz. Thus, the outcry from Mainz went unheard. Cologne had finally secured its rank as the supreme archbishopric of the empire. In the city of Cologne, Hermann and his sister Ida, the abbess of the convent of St. Mary in the capital, were a well-established team. The also-mentioned cross donated by Ida and Hermann for the newly built People's Altar in St. Mary in the capital is an expression of this. Hamon continued the course of his predecessors in many respects. Cologne was to become a Rome of the North. No, not the Rome of antiquity with its Colosseum, amphitheaters, and, the and a Circus Maximus, No, in the sense of a spiritual center of Christianity on earth. A holy Cologne, in fact. The new building of St. Mary in the capital, initiated by Ida, was to imitate Santa Maria Maggiore in Rome. Hermann also had the old cathedral expanded. It was also to resemble St. Peter's Basilica in Rome at that time. Finally, Hermann even transferred the ownership rights of Brauweiler Abbey to the Cologne Church. From then on, the former foundation of his parents was owned by the Archbishopric of Cologne. The children of Matilda and Ezzo presented here made this family one of the most powerful noble families of the empire. And in the Rhineland certainly the most powerful at all. Ida died as mentioned in 1060. Her brother Hermann II died in 1056. Ichetzer lived until 1063. And she lived to see Hermann's successor in the office of Archbishop of Cologne. But the accumulated property and power of the so-called etzonids continued, of course. Who should now still challenge this? As Hermann's successor, Emperor Henry III, chose a seemingly insignificant man from southern Germany, from Swabia. Have you ever heard of the place Steuslingen? I think no. Me neither. That's exactly where the new archbishop of Cologne originally came from. A nobleman, no question, but not even close to a high nobleman with connection to the ruling house, as many of the archbishops have been already, like Bruno or even, you know, Hermann. Hermann was a direct descendant of Theophanu and Otto II, Bruno had been the brother of Emperor Otto I. But this new archbishop was a man of lower nobility. And this man was called Anno. Who now thought that this new archbishop of Cologne, Anno, coming from lower nobility, should be an easy-to-control person whom its and emperors could use in control for themselves? Oh boy. This person was so mistaken. Archbishop Arnold II was to become one of the most enigmatic Cologne archbishops of the Middle Ages and maybe of all time. For some even the most dazzling. And even if many of the archbishops already presented here, such as Hildebold, Bruno or even Pilgrim, are nowadays almost forgotten in the public consciousness of the city, except for us history. Now of course Anno is someone who is not at all unforgotten. Why this is so, you'll find out in the next episodes. Because Anno's reign, the development of the city during his reign, and also the developments within the city population is something that requires more than just one episode. And from the second I started this podcast, I was already So looking forward to all these events in the second half of the 11th century. A lot is happening in medieval Europe, medieval Germany, and of course in the medieval Rhineland at the second half of the 11th century. So, we'll leave it with this cliffhanger for today. If you haven't already, please follow or subscribe to this podcast. You can help me raise the profile of the podcast in a very simple way by leaving a review on apple podcast or spotify i put my whole heart and soul into this in my spare time and on weekends like right now it's saturday so it would make me extremely happy it helps immensely and it's just a little tap of the finger on your app where you listen to this podcast furthermore I am very thankful for Artus Maximus for increasing his contribution on Patreon. On Patreon this podcast can be supported additionally, so if you have 1 or 2 euros too much or to spare per episode, check it out. I would be very happy. Who cannot wait as always every 3 weeks until a new episode comes out can follow me on social media like Facebook or Instagram as well as TikTok under the History of Cologne or History of Cologne, something like that. You will find me if you type in something like that. Or read the companion post to this episode, where you can read, (laughs) look at pictures, photos and more information to every single episode on thehistoryofcologne.com. Thanks for listening. Recommend me further. And as always, auf Wiedersehen.